0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly, Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And now, here's David.
1: Good morning. To honor or to shame that is the question and that is this morning's question from first corinthians 11 verses 2 to 16. i recognize there has been a lot of debate about this passage of scripture what i say in this message is a summary of my recent study and represents my view at this point in time there are certainly many other valid interpretations Although I was aware of the Spirit's presence during my preparation, I realize I myself have much more to learn and to understand. I pray that these thoughts may encourage us to study further and to to discuss without contention. In November 2018, the Bank of Canada released a new $10 bill. On it appeared the picture of Viola Desmond. She was a black Canadian who sought to reverse the effects of racism in Canada. She is best known for her conviction of the offense of breaking the rules of a Halifax theater. In 1946, she attempted to sit in the whites only seating at the theater. Her legal battles brought attention to the existence of racism in Canada. She also worked to elevate the status of other Black women by establishing a beauty school that supported the training and employment of Black women in Canada. I mention this woman as an example of someone we honour by printing her image on our currency and who herself honoured her Black community by seeking to elevate the status of black Canadians. The concepts of honor and shame were critical and central to the Greco-Roman culture of the first century. And this applied to first century Corinth. In honor-shame cultures, value is derived through connections or relationships. Identity depends on these relationships. Rather than achieving one's own individual value, a person's value is dependent on the value given by their community or group. To bring honor to the group is the primary goal. On the other hand, to bring shame is a disaster. In such a culture, everyone's moral duty is to maintain the social order. An honor-shame culture is quite different from the one in which we live. In our culture, it is individualism that is important. Everyone is valuable for who they are, and value is not dependent on a relationship. As such, our sense of justice is often quite different. It is important to understand that the New Testament letters, such as 1 Corinthians, were written to a people in a very different culture. These letters are the gospel being applied in an honor-shame culture. If that is the case, we will have to take care in our understanding of these letters when we look at them through our cultural lens it is likely that things may seem a little fuzzy or distorted at times. The passage today in 1 Corinthians 11 is a good example of the difficulties in understanding and applying scripture in our context. In this passage, we will find unfamiliar terms, unknown customs, difficult logic, and hard-to-understand sentences. Add to this that we are working from an English translation of first century Greek. The words and metaphors may be unfamiliar. You might anticipate, as others have noticed, that this is a very difficult passage to understand. It is apparent that there are a diversity of opinions on what it might mean and how it should apply to our meetings. Let's take a few moments to read the verses this morning. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, It is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So after a word of praise for their keeping of tradition, Paul leads off with the theological formula that is on the screen. The head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. I believe that he wants the Corinthians to realize that their attitudes and actions are to be based on their understanding of God and humanity. If this theology and anthropology is understood, then the instructions will make more sense. I always find it easier to do something if I understand the reason for doing it. Unfortunately, at this point, we encounter a word that presents challenges for interpreters. That is the simple word head. Paul is using the term both metaphorically and literally. But that shouldn't be too much of a problem, because we too use the word metaphorically, as in head of state or head of the department. It would be quite natural for English speakers to understand head as someone in authority however it seems that the greeks didn't use the head as a metaphor for authority very often if at all this has led to a great deal of scholarly debate as to the meaning of head in this passage and other new testament passages perhaps the simplest evidence That there is a problem comes from looking at the greek translation of the old testament that paul would have used and would have read the hebrew word for head occurs quite often in the old testament if the hebrew word rosh referred to the literal thing on the shoulders then the greek translators chose the greek word for head kephali. it turns out that hebrew like english Is quite comfortable using the term head, Rosh, to to refer to one in authority. The Greek translators, however, rarely used the word head when they when they were translating this medical metaphorical use of the word Rosh. Instead, about 170 times out of 180, they choose chose to use the Greek word for ruler. This at least suggests that using head as a metaphor for one in authority was rarely used by Greek speakers. It was not their go-to metaphor if they were trying to convey the idea of authority. So what else could it mean? Some have suggested that it is a metaphor for source of origin, such as the headwaters of a river although this option has a number of proponents and seems to have a degree of contextual support. There is little evidence of this use in ancient Greek literature. A third possibility is that the Greek word kephali has the connotation of prominence or preeminence. This position is put forward quite well in a 2016 paper by Dr. Richard's uh, sermon, titled On the Significance of Kefali, a study of the abuse of one Greek word. The link is at the bottom of the slide if you're interested in reading that paper. If this is the case, then Paul is making the point that Christ is preeminent or prominent in the relationship with man. I was not sure that I understood what that might mean, so... I typed the words preeminent and prominent into my thesaurus. I use that tool a lot. And I was excited by the synonyms that popped up. They included renown and acclaim, which when you go further in the thesaurus have meanings closely related to praise, glory, and honor. Wow, those words and their antonyms dishonor, disgrace, and shame are the same ones that Paul uses throughout this passage. Perhaps that gives us a clue as to the meaning of this metaphorical use of head. It may represent a relationship of honor passed from one to the next in a line of ascending order. Women are to honor men. Men are to honor Christ. And, and Christ honors God the Father. I'm going to call this the honor pathway. The verses that follow then become logically connected to the theology Paul has just reviewed. A man praying or prophesying, which would be speaking to God or speaking for God, with his head uncovered, somehow dishonored Christ. A woman doing the same thing in the meeting without her head covered somehow dishonored or shamed the men. Of course, the problem is how does a woman not covering her head bring dishonor to men? Here is where we are missing another cultural clue. Somehow for a woman to speak without covering her head was just as offensive as shaving her head. We lack the cultural key to understand just how this would shame the men, but it would probably be seen as trying to take the position of men. Maybe you have heard of churches that have segregated seating, women on one side and men on the other. What would happen in such a church if a woman came in and sat on the men's side? there would be a disruption of the service and people would be offended. This would result in a degree of communal shame. Maybe something similar would have happened in Corinth if a woman prayed with her head covered, sorry, without her head covered. To be the cause of shame was about the worst thing someone could do in that honor-shame culture. It disrupted the social order and harm the whole community. We stand here in our time and place, puzzled by how that could result from speaking with a bare head. Now, Paul may have been answering this very question from the Corinthian women. Paul, you say that in Christ there is neither male or female. We really appreciate that we are permitted to pray and prophesy in the meetings. Shouldn't we speak with our heads uncovered in the same way that the men do? It would appear that because of some cultural taboo, women, women speaking with head coverings, sorry, women speaking without head coverings would result in shaming the men and the whole church. It would be a poor testimony to the community in which they lived. So even though they are able to speak to God and for God in the meetings, even as the men do, they should do it in a culturally appropriate way. Today, in our culture, it is not offensive for a woman to speak with an uncovered head. That symbolic meaning has been lost. Cultural symbols do change with time and context. If I were to wear a swastika on my arm, you would be rightly disturbed. We would not let an anti-Semitic white supremacist speak from our pulpit. It would bring shame and dishonor to the church community. However, the swastika at, at one time was a symbol of good luck. We even have our community nearby named swastika that it was a a sign of good luck um, changed in around 1930 when the Nazis adopted it as their logo. The symbolic meaning has changed with time. Paul has given his answer. Women, you should cover. But interestingly, he doesn't leave it at that. I think he goes into his rabbi mode as he ties his instruction to the jewish scriptures the rabbis were very accustomed to basing their instructions on their understanding of the scripture and paul was educated in this teaching style i think that paul was very fond of the explanatory power of the creation account he often alludes to it in his writings he would have made sure that the Gentile Corinthian Christians were well acquainted with that story. The creation story explains how God brings order to the earth, and included in that order is the order that exists within the complex, codependent, and closely integrated relationship between men and women. In verse 7, Paul reaches back to Genesis 1 and reminds his readers that man is created in the image of God. He also adds something very interesting and says that man is the glory of God. This is not specifically mentioned in Genesis, but is inferred from man bearing the image of God. So man reflects God's glory. I recently learned that the Greek word for glory shares the same root as the Greek word for honor. And it is often illuminating to read the word honor wherever the word glory appears. This verse would then read, man is the honor of God. Now, isn't that interesting? Here we are talking about honor and shame. And Paul says that man is the honor of God. God honors man by giving man his image. Then Paul mentions women. He does not say that a woman is the image of man, for Genesis makes it clear that God bestows his image on both men and women. Rather, Paul says that woman is the glory or the honor of man. Man is to honor woman as God honors man. Now we have a reversal of the honor pathway that we looked at earlier. Maybe rather than use the word reversal, we should say that it is a two-way path. Honor flows from woman to man to God, but should also flow in the opposite direction. Here we find more support that Paul's opening statement in our passage is not an organizational hierarchy, but rather a description of preeminence and mutual honor. Jesus' relationship with the Father illustrates this two-way flow. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that he honors the Father and the Father glorifies him. Further explanation of this two-way codependent relationship is given in the following verses. There is an elegant pattern in verses 8, 9, 11, and 12. Paul is using his well-balanced Hebrew poetic mind. For each point, there is a corresponding counterpoint, but given in reverse order. That is probably most easily seen in the graphic form on the screen. Reading from the bottom left with a balancing thought on the opposite side. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Paul is continuing with his creation-based explanations. But now he moves to Genesis chapter 2. There, he notes, we find that man has the privilege of being first. In ancient cultures, to be the first was a big deal. The firstborn was the one who basically got it all. It became his responsibility to care for the family and maintain the family honor. The firstborn has the position of preeminence. We see this In Paul's description of Jesus, in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 18, speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So being first in that culture meant being preeminent and having the position of honor and the responsibility of sharing that honor. The creation story goes on to explain how women brought order to the relationship. She was the solution to a deficiency in man. He was alone, and that was not good. Everything else in creation had been declared good or well-ordered. But here, there was an incomplete order. Man needed woman in order that humanity would be complete and fully ordered. Honor had to be shared. The woman to bring honor and completion to the man, and the man to share his honor, the flesh of his flesh. Woman who came from his side and was worthy of care and honor. As if if to drive home this point, Paul explains that men and women cannot exist independently they need each other this is not a relationship of authority and submission but one of mutual dependence and shared honor each has a responsibility to the other each must choose to maintain the honor pathway or the result will be the introduction of shame to the relationship you may have noticed that i skipped verse 10 that was on purpose I think that it fits on the top of Paul's well-balanced pyramid of thought. Now, verse 10 has given interpreters a big challenge. There have been endless debates on the correct translation and interpretation of this verse. I don't think anyone has really figured out what Paul was getting at by his reference to angels. But there are certainly some creative ideas. I think the main problem is that many approach this passage with the preconceived idea that it has to do with authority and specifically the authority of man over woman. As a result, the verse has been translated to help Paul say what he must have been trying to say. Verse 10, they argue, must be the counter to verse 7, which states that a man ought not to be covered. Therefore, in verse 10, Paul must have meant to say that a woman ought to be covered. This would show she is submissive to the authority of men. And it's not difficult to find examples of this translation. The uh, ESV says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And the New Living Translation, a translation that I often read, goes all in for this interpretation. It says, For this reason, and because of the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show she is under authority. Now, these translations add the words, a symbol, or to show, to the verse in an attempt to clarify the meaning of the idea they believe Paul was trying to convey. The problem is that the words a symbol do not appear in the text. Without them, the meaning becomes quite different. The Venerable King James Version actually sticks pretty close to the original language and says, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head, because of the angels, well, that's a little awkward, um, but the preposition on can also mean over if you make that substitution, then you get something like the new international two thousand and eleven version, which says it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Here in the context of verses 8 to 12, I think we come close to Paul's thoughts. Both men and women have the choice to maintain the honor pathway or to reject it. Men have this choice. They can uncover their heads. Women have the right to choose. They can cover their heads. If they choose not to cover, they are rejecting the culturally appropriate ways to show honor to the men during the meeting. If they make that choice, they will bring shame to the men and the church community, and the honor pathway will be broken. So again, there is freedom, as we have already studied in chapters 8 to 10. But the exercise of this freedom could hurt others and result in their shame. This, Paul says, is to be avoided by the option of yielding one's right for the benefits or the honor of others. How can all this help us in 2021 in our Western guilt and innocent culture? I believe that bringing honor and avoiding shame are still important for our meetings. We should avoid anything in our meetings that brings shame on others. This would include being contentious or quarrelsome about these issues. Ideas need to be discussed with respect and attentiveness. The church community needs to have opportunities for input in the decision making process as we judge for ourselves the best approach to bringing honor to the church. Specific to gender discussion, the women should seek to honor the men. Some examples might be listening attentively, attentively to men, encouraging them with words of affirmation, helping when they are going through difficult times, or recovering from failures, perhaps even failure in their role as those who honor God and women. And the men should honor the women. That could mean, again, listening attentively to them and recognizing the wisdom that God has given them. It could include encouraging them with affirming words. The church would benefit by learning from their greater emotional acuity we could consider ways of printing their images, metaphorically speaking, on the church currency, including our media, promotional materials, and participation in meetings. Just as Canada chose to honor Viola Desmond, we too should, would choose to honor the women in our church. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us this opportunity to read this message to the church in Corn. we pray for your spirit's help and guidance in understanding it and applying it in our lives and we pray that as we consider its meaning for us we would seek to bring honor to one another and honor to you and to our lord and savior jesus christ in whose name we pray amen
0: As David had mentioned, or referred to in Colossians, indeed, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We just close with one more song. Crown him with many crowns. Indeed, may he get the honor and the glory. Have a great day. The Lord be with you. The Lord keep you close. And may we just honor him in our lives today and always.